Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Earth News Interviews. My name is Dean. Joining me today is my co-host, Sophia. Hi, everyone. And our special guest today is PhD candidate at University of Toronto, Liz Phillips. Hello, Hello. Liz. Hello. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I don't think we've actually formally met yet, um, but could you tell us a bit about what what it is that you study um, at U of T? So I am in Department of Earth Sciences, um, and I study the kind of broad way to describe my research is contaminant hydrogeology. So I work with groundwater contaminants, common groundwater contaminants, and microbes that degrade them. So we typically say that the microbes, I mean, I sometimes say it's like they're eating the contaminants, but a more ac- kind of accurate way of putting it is really that they're they're kind of breathing these contaminants. So in the same way that we breathe oxygen and in our respiratory systems, we reduce oxygen. These microbes are reducing chlorinated contaminants. Um, and then we use stable isotopes, so mostly carbon, chlorine, hydrogen, to monitor the degradation. So when the microbes degrade these contaminants, the stable isotope ratios will change. And you can actually kind of tell us about details of the reaction by how they cause these isotope ratios to change. So that's really what I do, try and use isotope ratios to get some insight into these reaction mechanisms with the ideal kind of goal of using this to optimize these reactions in the field. And what is it that the these reactions uh, do in the field that be that people would know about? One of the groundwater contaminants that I work with that most people would know is chloroform. You might know this, but you might not know that it's actually a common groundwater contaminant. Hmm. Um, and so I work in all anaerobic, so there's no oxygen um, present in these settings. And what the microbes do is they take chloroform, which is a, essentially like a methane, but with three chlorine chlorines on it, and they'll reduce it. So they'll change one of those chlorine atoms to a hydrogen. So they'll reduce it to dichloromethane, which is still a groundwater contaminant. But then this dichloromethane can be, um, through a separate process, can be fermented to CO2. So you start with a groundwater contaminant and then you end with a, a harmless end product. That's the goal. So you need to have the proper microbes present, the proper conditions present for this to happen. Um, and using stable isotopes. So if, if you're in the lab, it's kind of easy to do your mass balances. You have a closed system and you're measuring and you can tell this is going to this, this is going to this. But in the field, you need a way to be able to tell that that's actually happening because it's an open system. There's a lot more going on. You might have dichloromethane coming in from a separate source. So you need to have a way to say, okay, this is degrading and it's degrading by this process. And that's where the isotopes can be very helpful. The only exposure I really have to to chloroform is in my chemistry lab in second year, we used it to clean the the NACL slides that we used for some analysis. So I was wondering if it was, if chloroform is like an industrially made uh, organic substance, is there like a baseline level in the environment? Are are we worried about a lot of it being in the environment in the water? Mm -hmm. So it is mostly the majority of the um, kind of sources of it, it's like a precursor, a chemical precursor to other substances. So Mm -hmm. another um, class of compounds that I've worked with 
that you also may be familiar with are chlorofluorocarbons or CFCs. So chloroform is a precursor to CFCs. It can be used to make some of those. It can be used to make um, kind of other industrial chemicals that are used for solvents, um, for foam blowing agents, like in um, things to put out fires. <laughs> the word just kind of escaped me. And um, for solvents, like what you mentioned, so to clean things. I wanted to know, because you're actually our first grad student that is, that's on this show. So congrats, but also thank you so much. Thanks a lot of bravery to be the first one. Uh, we wanted to ask, what's your experience with being a grad student? Um, so I started my master's in um, 2016. I did the one-year master's. Well, originally I signed up or I kind of came in looking to do the two-year master's. But then when I decided to do a PhD, switch into a one-year master's. So I started my PhD in 2017 and I've been working. So I'm in my third, well, starting my fourth year now. So mm -hmm. I should be hopefully finished in a year. Um, so my experience being a grad student is that this wasn't always my plan to kind of come in and do grad school. I didn't think I was going to do a master's and then I was like, okay, I'll do a master's, but I don't think I'll do a PhD. And now here I am because I really like the work and I like, not just doing the work to answer the questions, but sort of defining the questions too, figuring out what's important um, and what's interesting to you, designing experiments to answer those questions and analyzing the data. I think it's, I really like it. So that's kind of how I ended up here. What was it that drew you into your particular area with, with groundwater contaminants? Was it just like happenstance that you enjoyed like a, a class or a lecture or a field course, or did it just suddenly seem relevant societally? Yeah, so I've always had a really, um, I've always been very interested in environment. So I always thought I'd end up some in environmental science. And this kind of like backs up even further from your question, but in undergrad, I didn't really even have any, so much of an idea of what geology is. And then I took a geology course and loved it and found I could do environmental science coupled with geology. And so kind of the major streams there are geochemistry and hydrogeology. Um, so I really liked kind of that geochemistry, um, hydrogeology area. And then I took a, a stable isotope course in my fourth year um, and really liked it. And so um, when I was looking kind of into master's programs, I saw, um, I work with Barbara Sherwood-Lawler, Professor Sherwood-Lawler. So when I saw her research and seeing the kind of combination of these two things, the environmental hydrogeology and then stable isotopes. I was like, that's perfect. So, well, today we're going to talk about a topic that you, Liz, are really interested in, and that is uh, climate change and, and carbon sequestration. So, climate change and global warming are one of the greatest concerns of the century. Emissions of greenhouse gases have risen exponentially since the Industrial Revolution and are still rising relentlessly, despite global climate action agreements to move to a greener economy. So that's what it comes down to, carbon, which is this paradoxical molecule that fuels photosynthesis in the life of plants, but at the same time, it poses a real threat to all of animal life. And the effects of climate change will be felt, unfortunately, most acutely by maritime communities because of sea level rise and you know arid geographic regions where they disproportionately live in. They exist the threat of lack of rain and water will persist for longer periods in those areas. And especially will be most damaging to developing nations who lack the infrastructure to protect against inclement weather and storms, as well as a reliable government that will have appropriate contingency plans for these things. 
So it's clear that climate action plans must be executed to reduce emissions, but unfortunately, this isn't enough anymore. So the level of CO2 in the atmosphere is already too high, and the lag effect will continue for hundreds and hundreds of years. So the solution to this is actually to take the carbon out of the atmosphere and then bring it into a carbon sink. Now, there's already natural carbon sinks, but we need to speed this up. So we chose this article that Dean is going to summarize for us right now that proposes one of these ideas or a couple of them. All right. Yeah. So this article starts actually with a pretty ominous tone, and that is we're probably not going to meet the goals set out by the Paris Climate Agreement. And for those who don't know much about it, the Paris Agreement is an international cooperative signed by 189 member states. Each agreed to take meaningful steps in reducing their greenhouse gas emissions to avoid the climate emergency that we're currently racing toward. The goal specifically is to limit the total long-term temperature increase to below two degrees Celsius, um, but preferably we'd limit it to 1.5 degrees Celsius increase. But the bad news is hardly anybody studying the situation still believes that we're going to meet either of these goals set out, which, and it was only set out like four years ago. This is 2016. So they've already given up. <laughs> they've already given up on the hope. Um, the worst emitters are still, um, still being really, really bad emitters, <laughs> U.S. <clears throat> and um, it's looking like we'll see a rise more like 2.6 degrees Celsius to 3.7 degrees Celsius. We turn to technology and geoengineering to help mitigate the emissions that we shouldn't be emitting in the first place, try to save us. One potential key tool is the ocean. Now, the ocean is naturally sequestering or burying about one quarter of the world's annual emissions. Uh, Liz, could you tell us a bit about the ocean's drawdown of atmospheric carbon and how it fits into the larger carbon cycle? Yeah, so the ocean is, and I think it even kind of goes through this in the article, but if you think about the carbon cycle as kind of different like sources and sinks of carbon, the ocean is one of the largest or the largest carbon sink if you kind of take into account all of the carbon that's stored there. So there's carbon stored as dissolved inorganic carbon. So there's dissolved actual CO2, but there's also different species. So there is carbonate, um, bicarbonate and carbonic acid. So the with um, bicarbonate ions being kind of the largest species in the ocean. And then there's also carbonate minerals. So you've got things like aragonite calcite, which are that they contain like the carbonate ion plus magnesium calcium. And then um, a lot of this is actually stored in by biological organisms. So you've got like shell, these organisms that build their shells out of calcite or aragonite. And on top of that, you have kind of like organisms like plankton, phytoplankton, which photosynthesize. So they take in CO2 that way. Um, so there are all these different sub ways that carbon is being stored in the ocean, but the carbon storage in the ocean is massive compared to other sinks. And so, as you say, it's a quarter of the emissions that we're annually emitting. Right. And they're hoping to really accelerate this drawdown. One method is to increase the number of population of photosynthetic organisms, as you were, as you were describing, that live in the ocean so that they can be sequestered 
onto the ocean floor and get buried. Uh, this is also known as ocean fertilization. So I guess you're fertilizing the water to make it more productive, as they say. Can you tell us a bit more about this specific approach, this specific process that they're hoping to take advantage of? So the one that you mentioned about kind of increasing photosynthetic activity. So in the oceans, there's typically some sort of limiting nutrient that is limiting the growth of these organisms. And so the the proposal there is to add this nutrient to the ocean so that the biological activity can essentially boom. And then they'll photosynthesize more and more and more. So they'll keep bringing in more CO2. And um, that's kind of the strategy that they were referring to there. So like the what's limiting their growth is like, say, like iron or something like that. And if you just sprinkle a bit more iron, maybe a lot more like algae type of things would grow. Yeah, so exactly. The iron is the example that they use. But this is also, this is actually an issue some, with things like nitrate. And um, nitrogen that comes runs off of fertilizers and causing causes algal blooms. That that's actually an issue in a lot of environments. It's eutrophication, which you've probably heard of. So it's kind of like taking advantage of something that can be an issue in other areas because then you get these algal booms, which limit the amount of sunlight that can get through, can penetrate to certain depths, limit the oxygen, and just kind of throws the whole thing out of balance. So it's something that you'd have to really control. So this transfer of carbon is the carbon goes from the atmosphere into the ocean and then you feed these biological organisms and the carbon goes into their bodies. They build their bodies with it and then they die and then they sink and they get buried into the floor. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I I like, I kind of like that. It's really focusing on their death. We need their death. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of (laughs) dreary. I was kind of surprised that it's the iron that's missing because that's that's the main kind of element that that the the article mentioned that that's what we have to add to the oceans in order to enable these blooms. But yeah, for some reason, I always thought that it was the nitrogen or like the phosphorus that was that was missing. Mm-hmm. It probably differs based on the different organisms, right? Yeah, true. I was just imagining the whole ocean, like what you mentioned, Liz, the eutrophication, and just have the entire ocean just this giant algal bloom and how daunting that would be Mm -hmm. so the other way uh that we can improve the ocean's carbon drawdown efficiency uh is to foster more mineral weathering so when minerals react with the carbon in the in the water they precipitate out it can become buried over time this way as, as solid material can you tell us a bit more about mineral weathering method of carbon burial yeah so i reading this article i actually realized this specific method that they're talking about here, I hadn't actually heard too much about. And that kind of makes sense because with this article and a few other that I had looked at, they said that this isn't um, a very commonly reported method of carbon sequestration. So there are natural processes that occur in the ocean where CO2 is sequestered out of the atmosphere and is dissolved as these dissolved inorganic carbon species. And then from these kind of dissolved carbonate, bicarbonate, to a much lesser extent carbonic acid species, they can then be precipitated out as carbonate minerals. Um, And then they're stored as the carbonate minerals, as well as in the dissolved phase. So this specific um, method is by increasing the amount of alkalinity in the oceans, you can increase the amount of CO2 that's being dissolved and stored mostly in the organic phase, and then 
hopefully is precipitated out as carbonate minerals. There are these chemical reactions where when you have dissolution of naturally occurring um, alkaline minerals, so this even includes carbonate minerals like magnesite and calcite, um, when they dissolve in the presence of water and CO2, it stores CO2 as one of these dissolved inorganic carbon species, so mostly as um, bicarbonate. So if you have something like a carbonate mineral, you'll get, if you have one mole of your carbonate mineral, or um, if you look at it in terms of magnesium that's in magnesite, you'll get two moles of dissolved bicarbonate. And this, um, so this kind of sequesters, so for every kind of time this reaction happens, you're sequestering one mole of carbon from the atmosphere. But then if you have instead a silicate mineral like forsterite, you can get up to four moles of carbon that's being stored in the ocean. So just these reactions by dissolving, you're actually kind of pulling the carbon into the dissolved phase in the ocean. So those are the naturally occurring minerals that happens. But the method here, they want to take advantage of that and actually produce their own alkaline minerals. Like one of the um, ones that the article mentioned is lime, so calcium oxide. And these are kind of more reactive, so you can get the dissolution happening faster and more. And the, and the other bonus to this is it kind of directly combats the ocean acidification, which is actually a, a major problem for ocean communities, like these uh, marine ecosystems, I'm thinking like coral reefs, and the Great Barrier Reef, which are really suffering and dying from the amount of acidity in the ocean. I wonder how, how much can this kind of be directly sprinkled in over like an area, say, of the Great Barrier Reef and just kind of protect that little area from acidity? Because I know it's been having like coral bleaching. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So I think there's still a lot of uncertainty about implementing this method because there's a lot of uncertainty about the kind of effects that would happen to biological communities as a result of this as kind of like almost direct and indirect effects. So if you have things like your silicate ions uh, or silicate minerals and you're using those for as alkaline materials, then you can get a bunch of an increase in dissolved silicate or silicon, which you don't know how that would affect certain environments. So I've heard the ocean acidification be referred to as climate change's evil twin, which I think it's interesting because it, it, it does receive less attention, but it's actually so linked to it and it's so important. But I don't know, especially with an, an ecosystem like the Great Barrier Reef, that's obviously very important and very well known. I think you wouldn't want to just start experimenting in that area. <laughs> yeah. Maybe take a less famous reef. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I feel bad. It's... <laughs> you know, that actually... There... There are two big unknowns, right, in this article that they that they kind of highlight. And one of them is uh, we don't know how much, we don't know exactly how marine ecosystems will respond to these changes in pH or with these new trace elements that are being, you know, sowed in them. Preliminary studies suggest there isn't too much cause for alarm, but small and medium scale trials are definitely needed to be sure about this. And this leads to this big unknown. How does the international community respond to this? How do we, how do we run these field tests? How should we expect, like, say, the Australian government to fully fund and research into ocean alkalinization? Uh, should we expect them to offer up their own shorelines and reef ecosystems and be the guinea pigs for these experiments? 
Uh, one reason climate change is such a unique problem is because of its magnitude. No one country can fund enough research to figure out a solution. And even if a solution were to be found, it takes the political will over a hundred nations to do something about it. And we've we've never done anything like this before. It's definitely a new test. But what what do, what do you think? What's your take on the political side of it, where you have to have countries decide for themselves and have the will to to cooperate on this scale? I think it's interesting because a lot of that is mirrored with what we're seeing with COVID right now, in terms of it being such a global issue, and everybody kind of wants, especially at the beginning, everybody kind of wants to point to whose problem it is, whose fault it is, but we're all kind of feeling the scope of the problem. A program that I'm in, in BioZone, which is in chemical engineering, they're running a kind of an open science, promoting open science, um, which is kind of a newer, from what I gather, newer approach to things. A problem on this sort of scale, you're, you can't really put the onus on one country, and it's tough to kind of start to assign who should be taking what, and we see that a lot with, with countries that are kind of feeling the urgency of it, countries like Australia or a lot of like island countries that are feeling the urgency because they're feeling the effects so much more than others versus the countries that you can kind of point to um, as being the largest emitters and kind of um, driving the problem. So I think, I think it's a lot more complicated than it kind of seems like at the start and Obviously, this sounds pretty idealistic, but it's it's kind of a problem that we're not really going to solve if we're concerned about whose fault it is and keeping our science within our borders and wanting to be the country that gets the, you know, golden ticket. Um, it's really going to come through, in my opinion, from what I, I know about um, scientific collaboration, it's going to be interdisciplinary, not even just across different scientific disciplines, but all disciplines, all social, economic and it's going to have to come through international collaboration and I think really open collaboration where you're not trying to hide your findings and, and be the one that's the hero for finding it. Right. Yeah, the, they really kind of highlight the scale of, of this solution, of what they're, what they're kind of trying to propose. They don't even really know how much we can scale up this process. So it was calculated that in order to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by 30 parts per million, and we're at 410 parts per million today. And before the Industrial Revolution, we were at least 140 parts per million less than that. But so to remove just 30 parts per million, we would need to spread about 500 gigatons of minerals throughout the ocean. And the reaction with the ocean water would remove about 470 gigatons of CO2 from the atmosphere. So 500 gigatons of alkaline minerals are needed. But the total global rock removal from human activity is about 50 gigatons per year. So that's like an order of magnitude there. Talk about a massive undertaking. When studies like this are done on these hypothetical scenarios, I wonder how much hope the authors have for these dream solutions. They, they're probably just hoping that as a society, we take notice and explore these options and implement them to some degree as part of a more comprehensive strategy, right? Yes. I mean, it, what's interesting, so a lot of these kind of solutions to climate change, they sound almost like sci-fi movies. Like some of them about like changing the amount of radiation we're receiving, like actually building something where we can start reflecting back sunlight, things like 
distributing 500 gigatons of alkaline minerals throughout the ocean, it sounds to me like almost unreal. And also something that I always try and remind myself, and I think these authors are also kind of coming through with as well. I mean, what you see in science is you never want to kind of say anything definitely, and then also paint anything as the perfect solution because every action has an equal reaction and the impacts that you think you know, but then there's so many impacts that you could never predict. And you should always kind of be careful. And I think actually going back to CFCs, one project I was looking at, you should always be careful about this kind of like perfect solution. When you look at it, CFCs were brought out. So chlorofluorocarbons were brought out as refrigerants for refrigerators. They were not toxic. They were not reactive. They thought these were kind of like the perfect solution. And then it comes out um, in 1970 that they're actually destroying our ozone layer. And we have a big hole in our ozone layer because of it. So you And same with fossil fuels. When we started to burn fossil fuels, it seemed like the perfect solution to our energy needs. And people wouldn't have predicted that we'd be digging ourselves in this hole <laughs> in terms of our climate. So it's just kind of like whenever you're proposing a solution on this scale that's affecting something as important as our oceans, you have to really, really approach it with caution if actually undertaking it at all. It makes me nervous. It's very cool to think about, but it makes me nervous the amount that we wouldn't even predict would happen because of this. I think uh, I'm really glad that you mentioned the sci-fi-esque-ness <laughs> of all these, all these solutions. I think the craziest one that I've heard so far is uh, increasing the surface albedo of the ocean by, I guess, stirring up foam in the ocean. So then you have this like reflective white foam layer. But I, I, just imagining the scale that you have to do this on yeah. is is crazy to me. And and the other thing that you mentioned was that potentially the the side effects of doing such a you know grand undertaking if we don't really do the research to to look at what the side effects are, we can potentially be causing more harm than good. And something that I wanted to ask is if the oceans and coastal ecosystems already naturally remove 25% of the atmospheric CO2 that's sequestered through a series of feedback loops and chemical reactions. I mean, we know already that since the industrial revolution, this has been the cause of surface ocean acidification, which affects shell building organisms and coral reefs. So wouldn't this solution of bringing in and dissolving more CO2 into the ocean eventually kind of reverse what we want to do initially, since we're increasing the CO2 absorption capacity of the ocean? That's where the kind of mineral alkalinity comes in. But I was thinking, mm -hmm. I mean, the same thing, because you need to make sure. So the alkalinity is the resistance to changes in pH to more acidic pHs. If you're dissolving CO2 into the water, creating these dissolved inorganic carbon species, and some of them are acidic, that's, as you mentioned, like what's causing um, ocean acidity, the kind of solution to that part is with the alkalinity. So you're kind of, you're increasing the species that can cause an increase in acidity by de decreasing pH, but you're kind of balancing that by adding this alkalinity. You're just kind of increasing the pool of alkaline substances, which are there to pretty much catch any protons in the water, because that's what causes the acidity as well. So you're kind of hoping that that would all get caught, like kind of balance out in the system, which maybe it works in small scale, but you never know how that's going to work 
it's similar to my research. I work with bugs in a jar, microbes in a jar, in a lab. And we try and extend that to what happens at a field site. And there's always all these kind of confounding factors because there's always things that you kind of don't account for. And that's something Mm -hmm. definitely that would be something that you want to keep in mind. You don't want to all of a sudden exacerbate this problem of ocean acidity by trying to kind of mitigate one problem. So one of the things that I I think about um, with this issue of, of kind of geoengineering a solution, climate change is a threat which attacks us all, but it does not attack us all equally. People residing in the lower latitudes who also generally have fewer resources to begin with are getting the brunt of the negative impact from heat waves, flooding, water scarcity, food insecurity. To what extent can we predict the more localized effects that geoengineering would have in hopes of not exacerbating these inequities? Uh, Would, for instance, ocean fertilization have maybe side effects of increased fish yields in the areas that it's applied? or maybe negative fish yields in the areas it's applied? So I think that's a great question. And I think kind of considering these environmental inequalities, environmental justice is so important because as you mentioned, there's different society or different kind of geographical locations that are experiencing things more than others. And then there's also kind of the unequal distribution of the impacts on socioeconomic classes. And something like when we were talking about who's responsible, who would want to kind of start to implement some of these, I feel like a lot of places would not want to be the first. And so if you were to be the first, it's probably going to be somewhere um, because everybody's like the not in my backyard. And I think it would probably end up being in an area that is already probably disproportionately impacted by climate effects because they're and they're more urgent, so they want to kind of get the ball rolling. But also probably maybe a country or a geographical location that doesn't have as much pull or already doesn't have as much sway. So it's kind of they're already kind of put into a, a rough position. Something like I, I'm kind of thinking with something like what you're mentioning with the um, adding trace elements or trace minerals to kind of stimulate photosynthesis. From what I know about eutrophication, because it negatively impacts the um ecosystems in general because it causes kind of like a a boom in one organism that needs to be compensated by the resources in the environment. Um, I would kind of assume that it would cause a change in the ecosystem, probably not for the better. And so that's kind of something, again, people, a lot of countries wouldn't want, especially if they're already heavily dependent on um, fisheries for their economic development. And it would probably end up landing on a country that didn't have as much say. Some country that already has all their fish fished out of their waters by other com- other countries, right? Who already has basically nothing else to lose. And then it just kind of keeps this positive feedback loop of keeping them, keeping certain countries down. Yeah. I don't live in a maritime province. So the ocean to me seems like this really far away thing that, I don't feel like the ocean's really, you know, my backyard directly as as much as, say, for example, if like an operation of carbon sequestration was happening in Ontario in like Hamilton or something. So could you tell us a little bit more about the types of technologies that have been proposed on land? Yeah, so I've seen a, um, a few things on basalt weathering. So you have like these silicate minerals and when their weather, they produce positive ions. So if you have like 
an iron silicate or magnesium silicate or something like that. So they weather naturally in the environment. If you try and enhance this weathering, either by crushing it, um, milling it, and kind of and distributing it over like a field, so you've got this high surface um, surface area to react with CO2 in the atmosphere. And then when, when it rains, you get the CO2 dissolved in the water. So you get these dissolved inorganic carbon species again. And then they can then react with these positive ions to form carbonate minerals. So if you have dissolution of, um, say, calcite from your um, silicate rock, and then you have dissolved inorganic carbon species that's then being reacted, you can form calcite. And then it's kind of stored again in these carbonate minerals. But then you're using a lot of land that could otherwise be used for agriculture. So that's what a concern with that. Just in the amount of space that you would need, um, you could be taking away agricultural land to feed communities. And so then again, you get this issue with people being disproportionately impacted that are probably already experiencing food insecurity. Just makes it harder for people to access food. Then there's another one. I saw a really interesting talk um, at the Goldschmidt conference. Um, in June about this, it's called CarbFix, the CarbFix project. And so what they do is they have kind of a way of and of catching and storing atmospheric CO2. Then they highly pressurize it in water. So then you form supercritical CO2 and it's dissolved in the water. Then they take that and inject it underground into areas where they know they have these um, certain rock formations with silicate minerals. Then they inject it in underground. Um, you've got dissolved CO2, you've got silicate minerals, and then with the end goal being to have, again, these carbonate minerals precipitate and stored. Then you're storing the carbon underground, but it's stored as carbonate minerals, which kind of the idea of in, just injecting a bunch of carbon underground, I don't know, for me, automatically just seems like like we're creating another problem for ourselves maybe, and we just don't know what it is mm-hmm. yet, which is kind of similar to like the nuclear waste storage issues. But if you have it precipitated as carbonate minerals, it kind of seems like a bit more, a bit safer. So anyways, then you have to have ways of monitoring that you're actually precipitating these minerals and how much CO2 you're actually sequestering. And um, they're doing this in Iceland. So that's another one that I thought was really, really interesting. Um, And they're actually using isotopes of like calcium isotopes and um, to monitor that these are carbonate minerals are actually being precipitated. And then another project that I've heard of in, in Iceland, it's similar to what the first one where they were distributing basalt minerals or silicate minerals over kind of a field space, but they're using um, laser-based instruments to monitor this carbon isotopes in the CO2. So it's it kind of links back to the work that I do in terms of using carbon isotopes to kind of monitor a process. And they do that in situ in the field so they can monitor the CO2 isotopes and by doing that kind of have an idea of how much is being sequestered versus how much was there. I think it's important to also think about the natural ways, protecting the natural ways that it is being sequestered uh, on land as it is. So I've been working this summer kind of summarizing the carbon stocks of wetlands in North America and wetlands are great carbon sinks. And especially tidal areas like mangroves, they, they, they are even faster at burying the carbon. Uh, so that's, that's one thing we can do is also protect the, the wetlands we have, because the more of those are removed, the more we're going to have to make up in other methods. And also the, another sequestration on land would be 
afforestation. You're you're basically transferring carbon from the atmosphere into the quote unquote biosphere, basically storing it in vegetation and trees and stuff like that. So that's obviously not a long-term fix, but it could buy us a decade or two potentially, which gives us a little breathing room to pick up the pace in other areas, right? So maybe I'm just, it's a bias I have, but I really like to remember the natural ways that we're also doing and, and making sure we don't forget about them and and raise them for, for more farmland for these other things, you know? Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important. I always, I mean, I get so caught up in the engineered systems because I think it's really cool to, to think about how they're developed and how you can kind of utilize certain things like the chemistry that's already there. But you're so right. These natural systems are so important and they are there for a reason because life is so smart. Life has evolved there for a reason. And we should kind of take more trust in in those processes than we do sometimes because it's a lot smarter than we are. And when we kind of eventually get to that point, we're usually actually mimicking the processes that life has already. They're like, you're behind. So, <laughs> but... Uh, and and that's a good point, too, because there are other kind of benefits to preserving these natural systems as well. Things like planting trees and, and protecting our wetlands. With these different timescales, so we have about, you know, 50 years maybe to mitigate the, the worst effects of, of climate change. And then we have the timescale of hundreds of thousands of years that it takes for the ocean to sequester all the CO2. Is it possible for us to speed up this process or do we just have to, you know, trust the ocean to just just buffer and, and, and wait for all these years? You mentioned the kind of timescales that they put in the IPCC report are not very, like people aren't very optimistic about them. I know for, so for this enhanced alkalinity, they're hoping that by increasing the um, amount of alkaline minerals in the oceans, this will enhance and kind of speed up the process. But yeah, I don't know. I think I've always kind of thought, I think all these carbon sequestration methods are very, very cool. But I think we also need to, we need to kind of take a multi-pronged approach. I mean, this isn't just what I think, this is what I've read anyway, but it also makes sense. You can't kind of put all your eggs into one basket, especially when it has all these different um, potentially unforeseen effects. You want to try and like mitigate your carbon emissions. We really need to focus on decreasing our carbon emissions, which we can do. People just don't like the idea of it, especially we have a society that's heavily dependent on fossil fuels, especially here in Canada. It's a huge, huge kind of part of our economy. And it's so complicated when you start to unravel it. But yeah, we need to really focus on decreasing our emissions as well as starting to work on multiple carbon sequestration projects. And it's going to be kind of a mixture of all of these different approaches. And then on top of that, kind of resilient strategies we're going to have to start especially in some um, locations start investing into strategies that are going to protect certain communities from the effects of climate change because as everything that I've read and probably you've read nobody's very optimistic about the fact that we're going to keep the um, temperature increase to below one point even two degrees so we're going to start seeing impacts of these effects and people need to be prepared for it so it's kind of going to be like a, a mix of decreasing our emissions, engineered strategies, and resilience to these impacts. And are we going to be able to 
do that all by the time that the IPCC report says. I don't think so. But I also am optimistic by about um, even though COVID has been an insane ride for everybody, the decrease in emissions of certain things like sulfur dioxide, nitrates in the environment, but also of CO2, I think is kind of a nice little flip side of this. Seeing the amount that CO2 emissions can decrease if we make these drastic changes, yes, incredibly drastic changes. People's lives have been changed probably more than they ever have, but you can actually see that this can have an effect and that you don't need to travel as much as you thought you did. And people can be resilient and can adapt to certain situations if the situation kind of calls for it. Anyways, I, I went kind of off topic. Oh, that's fine. We, we like tangents, actually. <laughs> I don't know if our <laughs> listeners do. Sorry if you don't, but uh, we personally love them and we're not going to stop them. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kind of wondering, kind of going on a tangent myself, uh, what do you think about the idea of public outreach and communication becoming a part of the job? Uh, requirement of being a research scientist because things that scientists do is so relevant and so important for society to to know how how much of a job requirement should public outreach be for people who are actually studying the problems that we face i think it is so 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 important and i actually didn't even realize when i was in undergrad i actually i thought i knew how important it was, but now I'll probably just continue to emphasize it as I go along. In terms of job requirement, I think it would be, it's important. And I I think in an ideal kind of world, it would be a requirement, but you know, it's not always easy for certain people to, everybody has their different strengths. And especially I am not the best, like public speaking always makes me super nervous, but I think I have different strengths that can not accommodate for that, but just everybody has their strengths, I guess. Some people are writers, some people are speakers. Yeah. Some people are artists. Yeah. Yeah. But I think in terms of science communication, I think should be more of a requirement for you to learn instead of just kind of be one of those skills that you're just expected to have. Because in science, the communication is so veiled in these like you need to discuss your uncertainties. You need to never say anything for a fact. And you need to talk about confidence inter- intervals, ranges. No scientist will accept if you say, this will draw down 30% CO2 in 20 years. Boom, there. That wouldn't fly. But when you're communicating to the public, if you start to discuss your uncertainties and you start to discuss, this is what we don't know, people start to take that as, okay, then this is garbage. Like climate change isn't real. Politicians talk like that. So why are the scientists so uncertain about things? Yeah. So there needs to be kind of a way of bridging that gap and learning how to effectively communicate, how to really um, emphasize the importance of certain issues or concepts without getting so lost in your own uncertainty. So I think it's extremely important to learn. It could be a very important part of the job. I think that's a great way to to end this tangent and move into our segment where we ask you some more casual questions about your interests. So if you weren't an earth scientist, who would you be? That's tough. I actually, I, <laughs> um, I have a lot of, I like, I have interest in um, politics and I think I don't know too much about economics, but I think economics is interesting because it's almost like studying 
such a large part of human behavior, kind of monitoring these responses and economy. It's almost like science in that way, but kind of looking at people's behavior more. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you can't separate economics from, from human behavior. Right. Okay. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. I like that. Um, if you could, if you could solve one scientific mystery that really interests you, whether it's in earth sciences or, or whatever field, what would it be? Ooh. Oh, that's a good one. If I could solve, I mean, I couldn't solve it because I have zero, almost next to no background in the subject. An advanced alien whispers into your ear. Here's the solution. What is it you want to ask? Um, What's the deal with black holes? What's in there? What's it that, you know? (laughs) I like that. (laughs) What's up with black holes? (laughs) Yeah. That's a great answer. I don't think we've, I don't think we've had that on the show before. So we'd also like to find out if anyone knows. Um, and last but not least, we'd like to finish with a quote. So Dean, why don't you take it away? All right. So you knew it would happen eventually. I got another Sagan quote for you. Sophia made me cut it in half. So you're welcome. It's it's shorter than it was. (laughs) I apologize. Nonetheless. All right. I just thought it was really relevant. This is the first time we're doing climate change and he was big on that. Of course, we must keep our planet habitable, not on a leisurely timescale of centuries or millennia but urgently on a timescale of decades or even years. This will involve changes in government, in industry, in ethics, in economics, and religion. We've never done such a thing before, certainly not on a global scale. It may be too difficult for us. Dangerous technologies may be too widespread. Corruption may be too pervasive. There may be too many quarreling ethnic groups, nation states, and ideologies for the right kind of global change to be instituted. However, we humans also have a history of making long-lasting social change that nearly everyone thought impossible. We have often pulled together to face a common enemy. We seem these days much more willing to recognize the dangers before us than we were even a decade ago. The newly recognized dangers threaten all of us. No one can say how it will turn out down here. And that was from Pale Blue Dot, his book in 1997, which is over a decade ago. So I thought it was pretty, pretty relevant. Um, Definitely. Nice little optimistic way to, to end the episode. I like that. And with that, Liz, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing what you know about the subject that you know we haven't actually ever talked about on the show it's our first time that we've really kind of touched really upon climate change so thank you for for being here and sharing your passion for the subject too i can tell you really like this type type of stuff i do thanks so much for having me this is really really fun thank you to our listeners we hope to see you tune in next week for a brand new episode of earth news interviews Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. 